We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Today, I have Tori Black with me. Tori is an acupuncturist and a registered nurse. She's also the founder and director of the National Association of Hospice and Palliative Care Acupuncturists. She's written books for both acupuncturists looking to work in the hospice environment and for the layperson who wants to use the principles of acupressure and Chinese medicine to help those they care about who are in a life transition. Tori? Welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. I'm really happy to be here. Great. So I'm curious to know, you become an acupuncturist, and lots of acupuncturists choose different specialities. You found your way into hospice and palliative care. Can you tell yeah. us how you got there? Well, it was kind of a windy road. <laughs> um, I... Uh, I was actually working as a nurse at the time and in the ER, and I had just moved out to Denver, and I had a friend who had a friend who was working for the Denver hospice as a chaplain, and um, said they're always looking for nurses. Mm. And there, then I um, decided to apply and, and work for them for a while, and realized that really what I wanted to do was work for them as an acupuncturist, but... At the time, I spoke to the volunteer coordinator, and they they didn't really they they had had some acupuncture before, but they weren't really they didn't have a paid position, and they weren't really sure if they were going to be using acupuncture at the time. So I thought, wow, this is a field that's wide open for acupuncturists, and we need to be there. Yeah, you know it, it's funny, isn't it? Sometimes we see the utter lack of acupuncture in a certain sphere of life. And it's so easy to think, oh, that's impossible. Nobody's interested. Or you take the opposite point of view like you did and go, field is wide open. So ripe. Yeah. 
Well, I know that there are people that are acupuncturists that are working in the field, but I also know that it's it's a highly underserved population. Right. How do you see acupuncture being useful in the hospice context? You know, usually I think folks think about hospice as a place where people are, are, you know, they're kept comfortable, often with the use of drugs and, and various Western medical modalities. How does acupuncture fit into this picture? That's a great question, and there's really uh, two or three different ways to look at it. There's the hospice patient who has just come into hospice, who maybe has uh, two years to live. Mm. Um, and, and those are the patients that... Um, Years. You just said years. Yeah, yes, yes. Now, this is, this is interesting. I'm just going to interrupt for a moment because when I, and this is just my, you know, perhaps lack of understanding, but when I think of hospice, it's usually the last step that people go through on their way out of this world, and it's usually weeks or months. So talk, talk to me a bit about this years piece. Well, um, the... The idea behind hospice is that the average person under the average uh, disease prognosis will die within six months. But what we know is, really, there's no average people. (laughs) True. Um, Some people get in hospice and die the same day. Some people get in hospice and uh, come out of hospice and back into palliative care and are comfortable for several years. So it's it's a very fascinating field, and certainly more and more, actually, the, the last few years, it seems like the stays are shorter and shorter. But I've had patients that have been in for a couple of years. They can be recertified and and, um, and still be slowly declining, but um, there's peaks and valleys. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it sounds like there's this initial phase that you think about when people first enter. Well, I think when people first get that diagnosis that we think you're going to die in six months, that uh, there's a description from a another chaplain actually uh, on a CD I was listening to. She says, people hit the wall. Uh, suddenly they feel it's uh, their, their mortality. You know, they all, there's a, a reality that is uh, very different than one day I'm going to die. Uh, and so suddenly they're having to deal with this huge emotional transition, and that's where acupuncture, I think, comes in. Um, and certainly the, the book that I wrote is, uh, has a protocol that's geared for the emotional roller coaster that they're about to go on. Mm-hmm. So just to help them through that, that initial shock and eventually hopefully get them to a more peaceful acceptance of the fact that they are indeed going to die. Yeah, well, as we all are. I suspect that a lot of our listeners don't realize the, uh, how do I say it, the emotional aspect or the way acupuncture affects the emotional part of us. We, it's often, acupuncture is often thought of as a treatment for pain, but not necessarily as a treatment for the emotions. Right. Yeah. So tell us a little more about that. I, I think our listeners might be interested in hearing about how acupuncture actually affects our psychology and our emotions and our heart. 
the feeling heart. Well, sure, sure. Um, well, it's interesting because I am a I'm a trained traditional Chinese medicine person, but I wrote the book from five element acupuncture perspective, and I I believe that five elements um, when you work with with that kind of acupuncture, it really is better for the emotional part of treating the person. Um, so I, uh, there's great points for releasing anxiety, releasing fear, great points for helping the person just come back in balance so they can think more clearly, helping them if they're, uh, often people get in these patterns of worry or obsessive thoughts, so it, uh, there's points that will help them break through and allow them to have a, a, a calmer place, a, a place of release and and I think an openness that that uh, they really need. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference then between taking an anti-anxiety medication and the kind of calm and clarity that acupuncture brings. Is that is that so? Is that is that a fair description? Yes, yes. With the the medication it's a short I think a shorter effect. With the with the acupuncture I, I feel that like, um, maybe broadens the person in a way. Um, helps them balance, helps them calm without having any up or down side effects, you know, the, I think Western pharmaceuticals have a, a very strong place in hospice, and actually this is the other point that uh, I might make at this point, is that uh, often people come into hospice, their pain's not very well controlled, or their anxiety's not very well controlled, and they get that in, in the hospice setting where they may not when they're just out in the, in the regular world, and so... So oftentimes, once that's dealt with and they, they stop having that be the focus of their day, then their life expands in a way. They suddenly um, are able to be just a little bit more out in the world and a little less internalized. And I think that's, that's probably what acupuncture does as well, is it helps them open up, but uh, without the side effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's get back for a moment to your initial looking into this field and, and recognizing what a wide-open field it is. It sounds like the hospice that you contacted there in Denver, they had a little experience with acupuncture, but th- at this point they weren't so sure if they wanted to uh, get more involved with it. So how did you go about educating them or uh helping them to consider acupuncture as a viable alternative? Well, actually, I didn't work with the Denver hospice. Uh, it didn't come until later on. I was looking at other hospices. But that was the starting, the spark of this whole thing. It was, uh, uh, I was talking to, actually, it was a nurse educator there, and I said, you know, I'm really interested in, in doing acupuncture in hospice. And she was the one who gave me uh, an article written by a doctor whose name, unfortunately, I can't remember at the moment, but um, who uh, also did acupuncture and approached 
the hospice patients and, and trying to get relief from from the grief and loss uh, that they were going through to, to help them die in a more peaceful place. And I thought, this is perfect. So my experience with hospices is there's a saying in the field that you've seen one hospice, you've seen one hospice. Nah. <laughs> they're, they're all kind of different, yeah. Uh, and it's true. There's there's small hospices that maybe only have 25 patients. There's huge hospices that may be dealing with 200 patients. There's nonprofits and there's profits or for-profits, and you really have to go into each one knowing that they have a different structure but they all have the same intent, I think, and that's to give the best care possible to the patients that, and their families as they're dying. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, often it helps if you know someone in the hospice and kind of come in the back door, I say. But I, start, I started uh, holding hospices and uh, asked them very simple questions. Do you have an acupuncturist on on your staff, or do you have a volunteer who does acupuncture? And I found an amazing amount of them did not. And uh, when I asked the volunteer coordinators, generally what they would say is, if you want to volunteer, there's two levels. Often it's a layperson that volunteers and then a professional that volunteers. So a lot of uh, hospices have Actually, more hospices have massage therapists than they do acupuncturists. And each hospice has different um, interdisciplinary people, always the core, but also added volunteers. And that can be pet therapy, music therapy, um, there's art therapists, there's massage therapists and acupuncturists. Um, Sometimes there's chiropractors. So often the way to get in is to go through the volunteer trainer and ask them, you know, what what they need. And uh, some some require, you know, your professional license and liability insurance, and others, uh, and and that you go through their training. Yeah. So uh, it's sometimes it's not an overnight process. Sometimes it's a you know, three months from now, we're having a training, <laughs> and mm-hmm. you can you can start there. Well, and it seems like some training would be a really helpful thing. Most of us are not sitting with the dying, and you know, when I think about it, uh, there's a certain amount of anxiety that comes up. Um, at, at this point, I've been practicing long enough. I I actually have accompanied a number of people through that part of the road, but it's. You know, it's it's not terrain that we get much training in. That's true. That's so, true. as as let's talk about acupuncturists for a moment, because I'm sure there's going to be plenty that are listening to the show here today. And you've got this program, you've got stuff that yeah. you teach yeah. here, um, and we're going to have all that information on the show notes so people can go to it, so they can get your book or they can take your course. But for the moment, right now, what are some of the key things? And we'll talk about the profession for a moment. Acupuncturists. What should acupuncturists know? Or what should they be able to cultivate in themselves so that they can do this sort of work? Beyond knowing where to put the pins. I mean, we already, we're trained in that. But how do we cultivate something in ourselves to be able to be present in this sort of a situation? 
I think you hit it right on the head there, is uh, it is a matter of being present. It's a matter of uh, holding a presence, I believe, when you when you work with uh, an acupuncture patient. Often you're going to go into a home situation, and I think that's the one thing that I, I guess I would stress here, is if, if you really want to work in acupuncture, um, you may see your patients in the office to begin with, but you may need to think outside the box, literally, and and be prepared to, to be the the home physician, you know, the uh, the person that does make the house call, because eventually most people end up bent down. Yes. So you have to give up your idea of dying. <laughs> Ooh. And I know that that sounds funny, but everyone lives differently and everyone dies differently. And you have to not think of um, whatever scenario you, you think of when people are dying, because you're going to see amazingly different things. You're going to see some people that will still be getting out of bed the day before they die and doing normal things and may die very quickly. And you may see other people that you think, this guy's not going to make it till next week. And two months later, he's feeling better and is up and around. It's a, it's a fascinating field and it's, it's something you can never discount that the tenacity of the human spirit will amaze you. So first, don't don't go in thinking that you know what's really happening. Go in with an inquisitive mind. Ah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, I mean, that's just good advice, really, for any practitioner seeing any patient at any time, when you think true. about it, yeah. right? Yes. To, to kind of start from that not knowing place. Right. Never assume you know the whole story based on what you see. Mm. So uh, I think the other thing is uh, is to really examine your ideas about dying. What do you... Not, uh, not your ideas about what it looks like for someone to die, but what do you really... How do you really feel about that? Can you be comfortable with watching someone pass? Some people get into this field because someone they know has passed, and they, I think they want to maybe pay back a debt in a way. You know, they they feel like, oh, I wasn't there for someone that died, and but I want to be there for someone else that can. And, and that sort of professional distance is a lot easier than having someone that you know and love die. Not that you won't come to know and love your patients. You probably will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do, don't we? Actually, yeah, 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 yeah. That's actually the truth of it. Yeah, yeah, but it's you know it's different when it's a somebody that's a long term connection versus somebody that you may only know for six weeks. Mm-hmm. And I think the the other really important point is that uh, we say the patient is not just the patient; the patient is their family or their circle of care and the patient, because you will be dealing with with a lot of emotion around uh, what the other people in the surrounding areas are are really feeling and thinking, what they may be hiding from the patient, what they may want you to say to the patient because they can't say it. 
it's a very interesting family dynamic. I've had, I can't tell you how many conversations outside of the door, outside of the house, where a, maybe a, a child is saying, I'm more concerned, I know my father's passing, but I'm more concerned about my mother uh, because the stress is certainly part of her. So you have to broaden your perspective beyond the patient. Yeah, in some ways, we're, of course, we're treating this particular patient. It's impossible not to treat the entire system that they're embedded in. Right. And I think that's part of our training, that we that we really do know that from a holistic perspective. Uh, but you will get it even more so if you're doing home call. Sure. You know, I, I think this is one of the things, at least for me, about practicing Chinese medicine is the idea of who the patient is or the idea of what is being treated is so much broader than a diagnostic code or a set of symptoms. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and I think that the other bias we may have is that, uh, that we often discount... Uh, the Western practitioner, and uh, they will be very involved in this, but it, it's generally the nurses and the uh, certified nurses' aides that are going to know the patients fairly well, and we have to work with them in these situations because there are things that um, are very appropriate with hospice patients, uh, West, some, some heavy-duty Western pharmaceuticals, that we may or may not agree with in the in the day to day, but in a hospice situation, something like morphine may be your friend, mm -hmm. and you may you may be saying to the nurse, "I think this person needs more." So, the other thing to get familiar with is some of the medications they're on and and what they're for. And most hospices have they call them e kits, emergency kits symptom relief kits, or comfort care kits. They almost all have something in place in the, in the patient's home that is for extreme symptoms. And these usually have a pain reliever, uh, often a, a nausea medication, an anti-anxiety medicine, and usually something else for um, keeping secretions uh, minimalized. So it's good to to, um, to do a little research into that, I think, and, and find out, you know, what, what are the meds and be familiar because uh, the caretakers often are the ones who give these meds. It's, it's not the professionals that are there, but the caretakers often are the ones that say, you know, I just, I just gave them some of this. What do you think? Should I give them more? Mm-hmm. So there's some basic pharmacology of the of the of the usual medications that acupuncture should know about. Yeah, and and often we don't make those judgments, but we can say, you know, that's a really good question and let me call your nurse case manager and ask her cuz they're usually the ones that'll say yes or no. Um, and then you can pass that on. But if you know the medications and you, and hopefully you know the the team, they'll, you're going to gain some personal 
and professional respect, I think. Mm-hmm. So it's important to, to have that in place as a practitioner. Right. What about treating the family members or the caregivers? I think that's uh, really essential. And you may, again, it depends on how you set up. You may set up as just an independent outside practitioner that passes your cards around to different hospices. Or if you're a professional volunteer, you may only be there to treat the patient, but you may also then see the the family outside. So uh, there's some ethical considerations there that that will have to be determined by by your personal setup. But uh, we always used to joke about anti-anxiety medicine. It's like one for you and one for the patient, Mm -hmm. the family members, because it's it's an extremely stressful time for them. Of course. They may have to give up their, you know, their work. They may have to move back in with their parents or move back in with their children or, you know, have their whole world shifted. And the focus becomes so much on the patient that they often forget to take care of themselves. So Mm -hmm. I feel that's our, our role, too, is to remind them. You know, what are you doing? Are you okay? And ask them, are you okay? You know, uh, because the first thing they want to tell you is everything about the patient and what happened that day. Right. You know, I, I've i seen this actually with, with parents and kids. Sometimes I'll have parents bring in some kid, you know, kids that have, they've had some sort of trauma or an accident. And the, the kid is, the kid's having a rough go. And, of course, the parents are having a rough go. And so sometimes as the parents are sitting in the room with the child, as, as I've put some needles in, I'll ask the parent, would you like a few needles for your ear? Would you, you, know, would you like just a little something to help mm-hmm. you settle? And, um, and I think it's really helpful not just to the parent, but to the child as well, because the whole room just kind of calms and settles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're not carrying that extra anxiety with them. I think, and that's, a, that's an excellent point, and there's been a big popping up of community clinics in the last five to ten years, and I think that has the same principle as a community clinic, where they find after a while, everybody kind of sighs together, <laughs> and yes. everybody seems to be done about the same time. So it's an excellent opportunity uh, to help all the way around, because often the patients, you know, they get to a certain point where they they are comfortable. They are peaceful with the idea, yes, I'm dying, and it's okay. But then they, they say, but I'm so worried about my wife or my husband or my daughter or my son, whoever the primary caregiver is, because they just, they're trying really hard to take care of me, and, and I'm okay. I'm worried about them. So the table's just turned. Yeah. This, I've not worked in hospice, but I've been present at the passing of some family members. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. and really, this is so often the case. The person who's passing, they're, they're kind of, at, I don't know if they're at peace. Yeah, they're at peace with it. Um, yeah. But they're worried, about, they're worried about someone. Oh, is someone, you know, is this person going to be okay? They really yeah. want to know that. They really need to to see that and feel that. Mm-hmm. I think it really, I, I've seen it help people just let go and slip away quietly. 
Yeah. It's true. I, I often, I will often ask the, the primary caregiver, have you been able to say to the patient, it's okay to go? Mm. And sometimes they just can't. They, they, they can't. And they hold on and hold off. So, yeah, so it's it's a hard question to ask, but I think an important question. You know, have you been able to let this, to say to this person, it's okay to go? And sometimes, uh, especially with married couples that have been married a long time, sometimes they try, but they can't get there. And then I think something shifts. And they finally say, I'm okay now. It's, it's going to be okay now. And, and it, I, I tell them, you know, this is probably the, the biggest gift that you're ever going to give this person or the, the last gift that you're ever going to give them. And, uh, and I know it's a difficult thing to do, but, you know, sometimes it's, it's uh, if you don't say it before they go, I think you feel bad. I am I am struck as I'm listening to you talk about this, especially between longtime married couples, at how incredibly intimate this is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe it's a it's a really sacred time. I think uh, there's something about being a witness at a at a death that uh, that's just amazingly. Uh, it's the same same as as being at a birth. Uh, um, there's something about having someone come into this world or having someone leave this world where you can feel it in the air. It's something you hold in your heart, and and it's it's something that you often step back into the corner and you're just sort of the proverbial fly on the wall. Uh, and you're letting letting all this intimacy flow around you, which you can't help but be touched by the love that is shown. Mm. Sometimes it's just a, a simple gesture, you know, yeah. just someone coming in and maybe stroking someone's hair or touching their hand. And I think that's 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 another gift that we can we can give people is, and we have to get comfortable with that ourselves. But to to allow them to touch that person. Uh, often they're so afraid they're going to do something that's going to hurt them that they're, they're, they forget to touch them. So even if they're unconscious, I often say, you know, they can, they can still hear you because hearing is the last sense to go and it's okay for you to touch them. Hope you're enjoying the show. I'd love to know about what topics are of interest to you. If you have a health concern, or if you want to know specifics about how acupuncture can help to promote vibrant well-being, visit the website at www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and send an email. I'm struck by the incredible amount of receptivity that seems to go with 
helping, I was going to say help facilitate this process, but really it's being a part of this process. As practitioners in a regular clinical setting, I don't think we spend a whole lot of time with receptivity. We're busy trying to fix something. We're busy trying to change something. And so it brings up the question for me of what is it that we, and again, since we're acupuncturists, we'll, I'll frame it as acupuncturists, but really anybody, maybe any healthcare professional or maybe even, even family members, what do we have to unlearn? from our usual, I can do something about this stance that we take to the world. What do we have to unlearn to be able to really slip into this process? Yeah, um, it's a great question. I have a saying that some things are broken and can't be fixed. You know, um, you may repurpose it into a beautiful mosaic, but but it's not going to be fixed the same way. And I think that uh, I see that with Western practitioners as well. You know, we're we're all geared to try and fix it. We're trying. You know, we want to make it better. We want to make it. You know, uh, we want to cure people or help them get back in balance. You know, we we're really driven that way. But there comes a time when we have to unlearn that. That. Dying is a natural process. It's the end of a life cycle, and everyone dies. I always say, you know, I've yet to see anyone get out alive. That's right. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I uh, I think um, we have to recognize there's a time to put down that idea and and unlearn the fix it, and instead maybe learn how to gently guide someone. I suspect there was a time before we had all this technical medicine that we have where people maybe knew more about that or or inhabited that more. Yes, very much so. And if you think about Western medicine, it's only the the current Western medical model is only a couple hundred years old. So, um, we we didn't put people in uh, nursing homes very much. Most people actually died at home. And um, it's very interesting to read some of the older accounts of uh, death and dying. People often uh, people often see things and see people that have passed right before they die. And it, this used to actually be a common practice for families to to be in the room and and uh, talk to the person and say, you know, who do you see or what do you see? Or or just to be more familiar with the idea that this person's going to die at home. You know, this, this person will, will be with us until they're gone. Yeah, it seems with our current way of looking at it, I mean, I understand hospice is, is moving in a different direction, but often, so often people do die in a hospital and they die in the midst of, of heroic efforts. Yes. Um, with any luck at all, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I worked sort of both sides of that fence when I was a nurse. I worked as an ER nurse where we tried to save people's lives, and then I worked as a hospice nurse while we tried to improve the quality of their death, basically. So um, 
it's really important to think about advanced directives and talk about the advanced directives uh, because the truth of the matter is no one really knows when they're going to die. If you're in hospice, you sort of have a little bit, I, I hate to say it this way, but it's a little bit of a gift that you know, you know, when, when we expect you to die. Yes, and you're surrounded by people who have some experience and some comfort mm-hmm. with that. Right, right. But um, it's very different if someone dies suddenly. And um, and a lot of people do die, come in and have to be pronounced in the ER or die maybe in the ICU. And I find that uh, it's a very different chain of events, I think, and a very different feeling around the whole thing. Because when someone dies suddenly, you don't have that time to prepare. You're not mentally and emotionally ready uh, for, for somebody to die. And... When they're in hospice, you have time to process that, and they have time to process that. Sometimes, again, it depends on the length of the hospice stay. But uh, it's uh, always amazing to me when we have someone who is extremely sick but doesn't have symptoms or has symptoms but they're subclinical, and then suddenly they have stage 4 cancer, which is often often the, the causative factor because a lot of times cancer is not painful until you're maybe at, a, at such a high stage of, of uh, tumor growth that, that it starts pressing on a nerve or an organ or something. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think those kind of deaths are much more shocking. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it helps to unwind things gently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I want to just change the tack for a moment. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know in the people that you've worked with, uh, family members, what they have to say about the experience of their loved ones after they've gone. What the experience of acupuncture was for them or what the experience seemed to give them or help them with. You know, the family members are great. Um, they're so happy to have somebody there and somebody be present that I think, you know, it's a real gift to the practitioner. Uh, a lot of times what what I've heard is more about um, openness and lightness, I guess. It's, you know, it seems like after their treatment, they, they just seemed more emotionally open. They just seemed more settled. They just seemed more, less burdened or, or lighter. So those, I think, are, are the biggest energetic gifts, you know, that, that they get from acupuncture. Sometimes, depending on what's going on with the person, we can. there's different things that, you know, we were talking about before, what, what, we, what we don't know, you know, that there's things that happen pretty normally in the course of a person dying, and, and one of them is terminal agitation, and that's a lot of times uh, uh, the Western... Uh, ideas that they don't get enough oxygen to the brain, and so they become restless. And I think that's that restlessness is, is that they're not moving chi and they're not moving blood. Mm-hmm. So um, literally, you see this thrashing about of the covers, moving around of the legs, 
sometimes trying to get up and out of bed when they've been bedridden for months. Just they've got to get up, they've got to move. And I, I think that's one of the things that it does help calm them down sometimes uh, where the, the, they may get relief from medication and sometimes they may have adverse effects from medication. So uh, that's the other thing that seems to be a, a good place for acupuncture. Yeah. It, I've noticed for most people acupuncture has a profoundly settling effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's stunning that I can put needles into somebody, leave the room, come back in 20, 25 minutes, and it's like everything in the room has settled. The, I mean, the feeling in the room is different. Mm-hmm. There's a difference between walking into a church and walking into a bar. You can feel it, right? There's an energetic difference. Yeah, and I'm just going to interject something that I, I'm going back to the the things that we used to know, you know, when we, people died at home. It's very interesting because uh, where I'm practicing now is a it, it's a it's a very rural community still, and there is a, a lot of what I call old timey medicine. A lot of people that still use herbal concoctions and use folk medicine that uh, they've been using for years. And one of the practices here is uh, often if a person's dying, they open the window so the soul can go out mm. or they open a door. And I think it's not just that, but it changes the chi in the room. Sure. Uh, because, uh, of course, it oxygenates the room and moves, moves the air, so it changes the chi. Who doesn't love a nice open window? Yeah. You know, I mean, if the weather's right. Yeah. And even if it's not, it, it kind of takes the stale air out, you know. So um, I think that's one of the things I've seen sort of as the same thing that acupuncture does. It, it gives people a little bit of breathing room, somehow settles them down, and again, just uh, uh, pulls them in in a different way. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I guess that's the other Another point I would make that is something that we really need to know is that this is a big internal process when people are dying. They do tend to withdraw, and that is just, that's so normal. People often get upset, you know, he's just not very social today, or he's just just not talking much, or she just doesn't seem to be herself. Well, they're, they're in between worlds a lot. I think they're they're starting to move to the land of the dying from the land of the living and we're still we're still in the living land until we we are in the same situation so uh, that's the other thing to know is that if you go in and your patient is not it's not really highly receptive you just honor that place that that that's where they are and and sometimes the biggest gift you can give them is to say you know we can we can go ahead and do the needles today but I'm going to step out of the room and let you rest with that uh, and just give you some time. Unless, unless you really want me here, I'm just going to go ahead and let you rest and give them that permission because often so many family members come by and want to talk to them and, and, and actually try and keep them there and pull them into the room, and they just need that little retreat. And uh, it's, it's such a fine gift that we can give them as acupuncturists and and also, uh, I probably be a little more assertive than I normally am with the family. Say, you know, I think we just need to, to give them some space and let them rest. 
turn off the TV. Turn off the TV. Step away. You know, that phrase right there, step away, oh, I hear you say it, and it just, it just really rings true. How to step away. I mean, how to, how to be connected. It doesn't mean abandon. Mm-hmm. Connected and yet step away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, the other gift I think we can give them is to, is knowing what's going to happen or what might happen when they die and, and, and the, in the literal process. So it, it's good to familiarize yourself with those signs of what we call active dying. Mm, yeah, let's hear about those. Yeah, well, there's several things that happen when a person enters that phase. A lot of times the, the big thing we see is changes in breathing. And they may do what we call change of breathing which is, I call it cruise control breathing. They may slow their respirations down to six breaths per minute. And they may do those as a series fairly fast and then just stop breathing for a while. I've seen people actually breathe maybe 13 breaths and then have 40 seconds before they breathe again. Mm-hmm. And I've seen this too. Yeah, it's amazing to watch the people in the room, and and I always do remind the people in the room, even though they're not breathing, it's okay for you to breathe. (laughs) And sometimes that breaks the tension, but it's true. We all kind of hold our breaths and watch and wait. Absolutely, absolutely. It's amazing how we all entrain to that person's breathing. Mm Mm-hmm, Yeah. true. It's almost like watching somebody in labor. I think it's the same sort of thing. You want to you want to help them breathe out. And I wonder if that you know the Lamaze classes, where you are trained to breathe, 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 uh, with a coach. If maybe that was something that people used to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just wondering as we're having this conversation if if our ability to stay with our own breath as mm-hmm. this other person is learning to release their breath might help in a way to let them release their breath because we're not we're not entrained to their breathing we're not trying to hold and breathe them into life we're we're just present with our breath and allowing them to to let their breath be whatever it needs to be right yeah so there's there's a there's a couple other breathing patterns too that you may see there's mm. one um we call guppy breathing it's uh, it's where people almost take little sips of air, so it's a sort of sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then probably the the one that most people know about or have heard about is called a death rattle. And uh, to me, that's probably the most disturbing thing to hear. And I think as an acupuncturist, you pro- you may have to brace yourself to be in a room with someone who has a bad rattle, uh, because what happens is you lose your ability to swallow often, and you get secretions that build up in the throat, and they're not, and the person isn't in pain, but it just sounds really horrible. It's a, like a very noisy snore, but also almost like a, a, a gurgling that happens, and uh, I think that's uh, that's another time to be aware that in, in most comfort kits, there's something that will help with that. These uh, atropine drops, or they use 
scopolamine patches sometimes. How long might that defrattle go on for? Well, it really, it can go on for hours and often does. It's usually a sign that somebody's going to die within, I would say, within the day. And sometimes it suddenly stops. Sometimes that's because of the medication and, and sometimes the person is all of a sudden allowed, uh, able to cough. Uh, but often people do you, uh, lose their ability to cough or to swallow or they lose their gag reflex. And, and those are all things that can lend to that, that death rattle. And so in the, if they're in a hospital situation, often they may have suction. But in a home situation, there's really not much you can do. And even, even in the hospital situation, it's down in their throat, so you can't really suction it out. It's not in the back of their mouth or anything. So, mm-hmm. um, so being familiar with that as, a, as, uh, as something that happens. Right, part of the process. Right. And being able to turn to a family member and saying they're not in pain and this is normal. And, and normally the person is semi-conscious or, or unconscious at this point. Mm-hmm. It really, you know, isn't, isn't there. You know. What else would you, I'm going to put this in quotes, say is normal, but for the bystander, you know, or family member or caregiver who may not be so familiar with what normal is in a dying process, they might be a little flipped out by it. Are there are there other things that you might see or notice that you can just go, yeah, this is part of the process? Yeah, there's several things, actually, you know, and, and they don't always happen, but a lot of times they do. So one of them is, of course, the circulation just gets poor. So a person's feet might start turning blue, or they, you know, their toes and their feet will become extremely cold. Uh, you may not be able to find a fetal pulse. Mm-hmm. In some situations, like uh, congestive heart failure or kidney problems, uh, you'll have a lot of edema in the lower extremities. They may already be cold or hot, but then they may actually with sometimes with the edema it actually reabsorbs after a while because the person may not be able to drink and actually the body just slowly reabsorbs the fluid. And same with the hands, they they may get cold or the fingernails may start to turn blue, uh, and that's just the the body going into a uh, shock. Often the blood pressure, if you can find one. Either is really high or really low. Uh, usually it'll go high and then low, but not always. And um, they may have a very tachycardic pulse uh, mm-hmm. that then drops down very low. So, and that can be, you know, a person can have that and then suddenly level off. And it's very easy to be fooled by uh, what's going on with the person, too. I mean, there are times when I think, okay, this is it, you know, bring the family around because they're not going to, they can't sustain, you know, a heart rate of 138 beats a minute for forever, you know, and uh, you think, oh, they're going to, they'll probably be gone by the morning, you know, some people last a week, <laughs> and yeah. some people look perfectly normal when you leave, and then they're gone. Like you said earlier, there's... Uh... Uh, how do I say? I, I mean, there's no one way to die. There's no one particular way that people go. It can. It, it's always different. Uh, whatever your idea yeah. of what death looks like, might want to leave that at the door. Yeah, 
one of the hospices I, I worked with has a book that uh, is it's called Gone From My Sight. And it's a great little booklet, definitely worth getting. But it uh, is a, um, a manual on the signs and symptoms of dying. What happens about a month out? What happens about a week out? What happens a few days or hours out? And so oftentimes people will stop eating. And, uh, you know, usually their appetite just decreases and decreases. Uh, often the, the protein is the first thing to go. They, they can't digest the meat as they are. They need protein. They may have sores that don't heal because they can't get enough. Right, the circulation's poor. Yeah, they often lose weight, you know, and then, then they stop drinking or being able to swallow or just have anorexia where they just have no desire whatsoever to take anything in. Sure. So, so those are often, you know, pretty active signs. I've seen a person go, you know, seven, uh, seven days without water, but generally it's about three days. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like a useful book for people that might be interested in doing this sort of work, and I'll make sure that that information gets on the show notes page. Speaking of the show notes page, can you tell us a little bit about the trainings that you offer for acupuncturists and where they can find that information. Sure, sure. This is a course that's been approved by the NCCAOM uh, for eight PDAs. And if you're an acupuncturist, you know that what that is. And it's called uh, What You Need to Know to Become an Effective Hospice and Palliative Care Acupuncturist. And I wrote it from the perspective of, as an acupuncturist, you do. It's like you said, we know where to put the needles. But mostly it's stuff you wouldn't know if you hadn't been involved in hospice. So it's the hospice philosophy, some history about how hospice came to be in America. Uh, I threw in some history about Chinese death and dying perspective and, you know, what that looks like in a different country, but also where they are as far as their, their idea of death and dying and what impedes both our our forward movement on that. Put it, some information in regarding the who pays for hospice and, and how it gets covered. Uh, a lot about just the signs and symptoms. You have some of the physical signs and symptoms you'll see. I threw in a little uh, classic pulse diagnosis, which I thought I found was sort of fascinating. About if you have a certain you know, if you have this pulse, the patient will only last this long. Oh, yeah. I mean, we have stuff like that in the classics. and Yeah, yeah. And on those rare opportunities I've had to be with someone who's in the middle of passing, um, I can't mm-hmm. resist going over. I mean, yeah, I want to touch them and be with them. But I always slip in and, want to, and, and feel the pulse for a bit. You know, it's just like uh-huh. it's such a rare opportunity to, to feel that and see what's there. Yes, and if you know... You know, they're in acute renal failure, and the, the pulse is very different than if they're, you know, they're just in a, a regular heart rate, like from a tachycardia from, from heart failure mm-hmm. uh, or respiratory failure. It's very interesting. Then I have a protocol in there that I aligned it with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work, who, who wrote a classic book on uh, called On Death and Dying years and years ago. Classic, yeah. She was like the first to really popularize all this, yeah? Yeah, well, she was the first to really bring it out into the public. A lot of times we didn't, we just didn't talk much about 
deaf, you know, it was taboo to, you don't, you didn't speak it because uh, it might happen to you or, so yeah, um, she has five phases of, of grief and loss and I found it matched very well with five elements. So there's, you know, depression, there's, well, there's, there's anger, which is when you first hear about it, then, mm-hmm. then you're denial, you know, then oh, this can be right, you know, and then then you start to have a little bargaining. Well, uh, okay, yeah, this may be happening, but what if I what if I just do this? And and I think sometimes you'll see that a lot in, in patients that may be in hospice and then go back into palliative care for a little while. You know, I want to just try one more round of chemo. I I want to just try or you know, I just want to do this radiation to see if I can get more comfort. They're, they may be trying to buy time for a special event or, you know, I'm just going to try one more thing. And then mm-hmm. then they get to the phase of acceptance. And usually that's, uh, that's, what, that's what I'm trying to help them get to with the acupuncture as well. Is, and these points really help move people through to uh, a more peaceful place. And that's, that's my ultimate goal is to help them say, finally, yes, okay, I am going to die. Everyone's going to die, and, and I know that it's going to happen, and, you know, I'm okay with it now. I'm finally okay with it. So um, that's a, it's, a, it's a big shift that happens, and it's like you were talking about the whole room changing, the whole house changes when that happens. Sure, of course. People are saying, you know, he's finally talking about this, and he's finally ready to say goodbye. Probably a huge amount of relief that just surges through the entire family system there. Yeah, I think so. Some fear, and that, and and I think I guess that's the the point I'd like to make regarding treatment is in this in in, in the book and the protocol that I've got in there. I always treat for fear, always. Mm-hmm. Because even if it's not voiced, it's there. We don't know what's going to happen. And fear of the unknown is one of the things that drives us all through life. You know, gosh, I don't know what's going to happen if, if I don't do this or if I didn't do that or, you know, if my life changed. Or, and you don't, we don't know what happens. No, we don't. I mean, this is, I mean, isn't this why the old map makers always drew dragons at the edge of the known world? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, and then you fall off the edge of the world and you meet a dragon. <laughs> and, and you meet another world. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. great. Give us your website real quick. So if people would like to get a hold of your book or, or get a hold of your training, they can do that? Sure, sure. The The training is, you can either go through the PDA section on in the NA, uh, NTCAOM or you can go to flowing chi and she, in this instance, is spelled Q-I, not T-H-I. Okay. Again, I'll, I'll have that all on the show notes. There'll be a link for it so people can just go there and click. I, one other thing before we finish. I, I noticed, because I've been over to your website, that you not only have uh, this course for acupuncturists, but you've also got a book for caregivers where yes. they can use yes. some of these principles and they can use acupressure and that sort of thing. Can you tell us just a little bit about that before we finish up here? Well, this was actually the first idea that that I had with writing a book, actually, was I had this lovely family that was so sweet and so gentle with their mother, and they just wanted to do something. They were sitting around, and they just wanted to do something with her, and they 
they didn't know what to do and they were afraid to touch her and, you know, so tentative about what do we, what can we do, what can we do? And I thought, wow, this is where, where we need to help people just give them something they can do. And sure, we can use acupuncture and, and I'm not trying to put us out of business by any means, but we can also use acupressure. And there's so many people at, uh, at different places in the country that they may not have health care, may not be able to afford to pay for acupuncture. They may have the person that they're caring for is covered under Medicare, but they're not, you know, they're not able to have any extra help. Mm-hmm. So this was something that they could do to help the person move through, or they could use with themselves to help the person move through. And then the idea was that I might use it as a, a training for volunteers in hospices, but I also found out that a lot of times non-professional volunteers are not supposed to touch the patient. So I backed it off to more for family members or for anyone that is experiencing any kind of grief and loss. It doesn't necessarily have to be someone dying. It could be something, you know, that could be used in uh, disaster medicine Mm -hmm. or trauma medicine. But so that's like holdmegently.com. Oh, and uh, what a lovely name for a website! Yeah, yeah. Well, the book is is called "Hold Me Gently Through This Journey" ah. uh, because it is a journey, and um, and it talks a little bit about the things we already know, but how to get grounded and centered before you actually give your energy to someone else, and how to ask or talk to a person and dialogue with them, not just with yes and no questions, but to ask open ended questions and. And I just felt like that's sort of part of the um, the idea behind acupuncture was originally it was supposed to be the people's medicine. So this is my gift back to the people, just to have something, an inexpensive way to reference the treatment for them. Wonderful. Tori, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we wind this down today? Well, I just would put a, a quick plug in. I've started a National Association for Hospice and Care acupuncturists and hospice and palliative care acupuncturists and hoping to get members that will go through the training, take the course, join the association. We can put their name out there so that if a person in Arizona is looking for an acupuncturist, they can go to that site, especially one that's trained in hospice and palliative care, and they can go, oh, well, let me try this person because they've got that They've got that extra learning. They've got just enough extra learning that, that they may be the person who goes. And and I want to I want us to connect all the dots here. I, I want the the um, suppliers, the affiliates, the hospices, and the patients all and the acupuncturists to all find each other. So that's the intent behind that. So I would I would encourage people if you're really interested in the field. Please, please look into that as well. And, of course, that link will be on the show notes page as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's dnahpca.com. Share your ideas. I mean, uh, I, I know there are people out there already. Uh, I've got some people that have taken the course, and they said, you know, I've been in, I've been in the field for 23 years or 28 years, and it's, it's so time to do this. I'd love to see acupuncture eventually be covered as one of the modalities that is, uh, I mean, in the uh, in Medicare, we have a physician, a nurse, 
uh, a chaplain and a social worker and a CNA that are all offered under the Medicare benefit, wouldn't it be great if we could get an acupuncturist in there as well? You know, it's such a non-invasive and uh, at times profoundly helpful medicine. It, yeah, it, it, it'd be wonderful that people could simply have access to that if they wanted it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, um, I mean, it, this is what we do, you know, with the chaplain is we say we have the service available. They can accept or decline, but wouldn't it be nice if we actually could get that covered too and, and we could have people on staff because there are a lot of people out there that are interested they know acupuncture works, and they'd love to have it for somebody that just helps get them through this time. Yeah. Tori, thank you so much for your time today. It's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you, Michael. I, I really appreciate you being out there and putting the word out and uh, just have had a lovely time with you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture. If so, please take a moment, click on the iTunes review button, and leave a review of the show. And be sure to tune in again next week.